Hey friends, welcome to the Addiction Nutritionist Podcast. I'm Kelly Miller, nutrition therapist, health and wellness recovery coach, and certified nutrition nerd. On this podcast, we talk about all things health and wellness and recovery. We talk about pause and nutrition for post-acute withdrawal syndrome. We talk about biochemical repair and amino acid therapy. We even get into food addiction. We want this platform to be your number one resource for creating health and wellness and recovery so you can stop self-sabotaging habits for good. If you're tired of feeling stuck and you're ready to take action and learn how to build healthy habits and recovery, this podcast is for you. When you recover well, there's just no oxygen for addiction to survive. Let's create wellness together and start today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Addiction Nutritionist Podcast. I have an amazing guest speaker for us today, Dr. Mary Broad, who is a holistic psychiatrist. We are going to have a fantastic discussion today about what is holistic psychiatry? How did Dr. Mary sort of end up in that space? And how her approach is so much different from what we would consider the conventional model and how that can benefit patients who are dealing with anxiety, depression, mental health issues, and addictions as well. Before I officially introduce my guest and we read her bio today, we're just going to chat for a minute about bison. Uh, I was so excited when Dr. Mary chose bison as one of her favorite foods because this is also a highly ranked food for me. I probably eat it, I would say at least twice a week. Um, both of us live in Colorado, so it's very easily accessible for us, but I am finding that it's becoming more accessible in other parts of the country as well. Um, so just to give you a few really fun facts about bison, it is phenomenally more healthy and beneficial than uh, red meat. Red meat kind of gets a bad rap. I don't personally think there's anything wrong with eating red meat in in a way that is being moderated. Some people can eat more than others, but bison is actually a much uh, richer form of uh, good quality meats. It's higher in proteins, it's slightly higher in protein, but it's significantly higher in nutrients. Um, nutrients like B6 and B12, which you, we know if you've ever listened to this podcast before, crucial nutrients for mental health. It's also significantly higher in zinc. Iron, it's got 26% more iron than just traditional red beef, uh, red meat. It's higher in selenium, which is a powerful antioxidant. And omega-3 fatty acids, the good kind of fat, while also being significantly less in saturated fat. Again, I don't think saturated fat is such a bad thing, but there's definitely some people that are probably over-consuming it and maybe some people that are a little bit more sensitive to it. So bison overall is a much better source of what we would consider red meat um, because it's so much higher in nutrients at the same time, it's much, much lower in calories than regular red meat. Also, I'm not a big fan of like talking about everything in terms of calories, but when we talk about nutrient density, that's really kind of what we're looking for a food that's lower in calories, but much, much higher in nutrients and bison completely fits that profile. It actually has way less cholesterol than chicken, which is interesting because we're always being told like skinless chicken breast is the best way for you to like get protein without all the cholesterol, but bison is actually much uh, lower in cholesterol. Uh, it's got about 17 grams of protein per four ounces. Um, wow. What is this? 766% more B12 than chicken. 
766% more B12 than chicken. That's just crazy. Um, one of the reasons I love bison so much is because it's easily substituted in any dish, anything that calls for ground beef or even uh, like steak bites or any sort of thing you can substitute bison for. It's usually in the grass-fed form already, but I do look for the label that says that it's grass-fed and even grass-fed grass-finished might be best too. Um, but in, and here's the last thing I'll say about bison. If you've never had it, it's not gamey. Like some people might be thinking, Ooh, that sounds gamey. I've had venison. I've had deer. It's nothing like that. Right. Um, so I'm going to throw it back to you, Dr. Mary, what is your favorite way to consume bison? Oh, <laughs> you know, I don't know that I have a favorite, a favorite way of consuming bison or or red meat in general so i mean i'm i'm happy with a burger from ground beef i'm happy with a steak so i think for me it all depends on like what's in the freezer or what can i get my hands on because um yeah i'm just um i'm not that picky about the recipes quite honestly um that's awesome just, uh, i just uh um yeah, I, I'm. I, I am a fan of consuming, you know, red meat in in general, um, and bison or beef. Um, I I really enjoy both of them quite a bit these days, you know. And that's quite a journey from where I was years ago, and mm. you know, all those beans and all that chicken. <laughs> it's been a big transformation. Oh, um, I can't so, wait yeah. to hear more about that. No, no, no favorite recipes, but just a. Uh, but just enjoying again, like you said, the the nutrient density and the satisfaction that you get from really giving your body what it needs. I think our bodies really do crave protein in particular and fat, good fats secondarily. And um, yeah, bison delivers. It, oh my gosh, it does. It totally does. And I know my body craves protein and that's not something I ever knew or understood years ago. And when I did finally learn that in my own journey, life-changing, right? Um, yeah. So I'll just say my favorite way to consume it is ground bison with cabbage. I, that's like, I love ground bison with cabbage and it's especially, um, it's especially good if I've got some like cubed sweet potatoes with it, but we'll also often take regular red meat and bison meat and just mix it together, um, and make hamburger patties on the grill. So my family loves that. Uh, and, and they, they know that it's bison because we talk about that sort of thing. But I think if you did that for your own kids, they would never know that there was bison in there. Um, yeah, absolutely yeah, not. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Bison delivers. Oh, that's like such a good tagline. <laughs> Somebody's going to scoop that up. Okay. Let me in formally introduce you uh, to Dr. Mary Broad today. Um, she is a graduate of LSU medical school. She trained in pediatrics and later completed residency training in adult and child psychiatry. After working for several years in community mental health, she began studying alternative health treatments. She's a certified functional medicine provider. In her private practice, she works with patients who want more from treatment than what is typically provided with a medication-focused approach. We're going to talk a lot about that today. Um, so I think for really giving the audience a great understanding of what it is that you do and how it's different, let's talk a little bit about how functional medicine is different from conventional medicine, um, especially when it comes to psychiatry. Well, I'd say that the first thing is that functional medicine is different than conventional medicine in all areas because in functional medicine, we're trying to understand how someone 
or why someone has the symptoms that they're presenting with. Um, whereas the conventional approach is sort of finding out the symptoms, giving it a name, giving it a drug. Um, I've heard some people kind of describe that as um, uh, name it and tame it. Name it and tame it? Yeah. Oh, wow. I've also heard adios and diagnose or diagnose and adios. I've heard that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so functional medicine just is so different because, you know, the, this idea of, of really trying to understand how did this person start having these symptoms? Um, again, and one big difference, you know, conventional medicine, Oh, it, it's just genetic. You were just going to get this. It just ran in your family. And so, of course, you're here today. Um, we know or we have a different understanding in, in functional medicine that, yes, your genetics might have primed you to end up having a certain collection of symptoms, but it's not inevitable because um, we understand that many other factors in your life are, are played a role and you're getting those symptoms and then in maintaining those symptoms. So it's really this much slower process. It's a much more in-depth process of, of trying to understand pretty much everything that's happened to the patient before they show up in your office and then really having a very good understanding of how are they living their life today? What does their, you know, what does their diet what does their food, what does their movement, what does their stress, what do their relationships look like? All of it to have um, a sense of what might be con contributing to their symptoms now. Hmm. And I love that. And I think that's, you know, that's why we use terms like integrative psychiatry or holistic psychiatry, because you're talking about this conventional model, name it and tame it, which is so one-dimensional or two-dimensional. But when we consider there's an actual human being here in front of us who could never, um, you could never explain their, their childhood and their personal um, experiences and how they developed their beliefs by funneling all of that down and just to a simple diagnosis. They're this whole person with emotional health, physical health, spiritual health, and all of those pieces of the puzzle have to be addressed in order to move somebody along the continuum of healing. Um, I love this, uh, this approach. I, I would love to know a little bit more about where that split for you, you started out in conventional medicine, you know, did something happen? What's the story behind you sort of moving in that direction? Well, the, the, so I was, I was working in community mental health, um, uh, for a, um, community mental health center in, um, the, you know, the foothills in, in Jefferson, Jefferson County, um, mm -hmm. mental health and, uh, and working specifically in child and adolescent psychiatry. Um, so only saw children and teens. My job was just medication management and my patients would have uh, an assigned psychotherapist within Jefferson Center for Mental Health. But what happened there was the therapists were very, very busy and oftentimes, you know, only saw their patients once a month, once every three weeks, you know, sometimes more frequently, but it wasn't terribly frequent. Um, and sometimes patients didn't even show up for their therapy appointments, but, 
you know, the moms often brought their kids in to see me, the one who was prescribing the medications. And what happened was I got exposed to um, um, somebody's work and um, I won't name his name because there were good things, but then there weren't some good things <laughs> that I got out of that experience ultimately. But he just had this, it just really opened my eyes to the significance of trauma in the lives of the patients I was taking care of and in their families' lives. And, and understanding that trauma could underlie whether it was a, whether it was anxiety, depression, or oftentimes like the explosive, irritable, aggressive, destructive behavior that some of the kids that I was treating had, and that a medicating it was never going to heal the root of that. Mm. Nor was actually giving that child psychotherapy really going to help that. What they needed was for their families to heal. What they needed was for their caretakers to heal mm. and, and change, change the whole dynamic of that family. And, and I looked at the system I was working in and like, you know, just knew like, we are not delivering anything close to this. Mm. And I left. <laughs> wow. The most impulsive thing I think I've ever, well, I don't know. I've bought a horse really impulsively too. So maybe not the most impulsive thing I've done, but a pretty impulsive moment. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. But how powerful for you. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm like envisioning this, you know, you go through medical school and you're learning about all these diagnoses and you think like, oh, there's, there's a malfunction here and here's the medication that fixes. it. But, but, but now you're exposed to the family dynamic and it's right. It's right there in front of you. You can see it, right. The way that parents are showing up in the world, the way that they're interacting with their children, you're learning about the actual histories of the child. Um, and, and again, right. It's not that a gene just flipped on and this child now has ODD or some other type of diagnosis, but there's so many different things that interplay here. Um, but now I'm wondering like, okay, you left cause you had this paradigm shift, but what do you, what do you do with that? What, how do you treat a whole family and how do you where do you enter them into to healing? Is it addressing the trauma first? Like, I'd love to hear more about what pivoted for you after that moment. The, well, the next big sort of, I guess, pivot. Um, so, I mean, I was doing, I was kind of doing some work with families. I was actually speaking about this topic about, you know, whole family healing and, and healing trauma and supporting parents to help guide their children through healing their own trauma. Um, and then doing a little bit of, a little bit of private practice work, you know, at, at that point, I mean, I knew barely, I knew nothing about anything. Right. <laughs> and I got a phone call from a woman whose adult son was experiencing what sounded like psychosis. I ended up never meeting the, the, this man. Um, but his mom asked me on the phone if I practiced orthomolecular psychiatry. It's like, hmm, hadn't heard of it. This was 2007. Mm -hmm. um, looked it up, Googled it, you know, early days and found an, a clinic in Wichita, Kansas that was created by a leader 
in the orthomolecular movement, in particular, the orthomolecular psychiatry movement. Mm. And I found out they let people visit, they let doctors go visit their center. So I was planning a drive to Louisiana to go home for the holidays and tacked on a few days in Wichita, Kansas on my way there. And I was blown away by what I saw there. Um, just, Just in those first two days, and ultimately had the opportunity that they paid me <laughs> to go there a week a month. And I worked with their, I worked alongside their doctors. I saw patients there. I saw, you know, I got to see all the parts of what they did in their treatment, which again, wasn't necessarily a, a totally in-depth way for me to start learning, but it opened the door for me to decide, okay, what other way do I want to start learning about integrative medicine? Um, and I started my journey with, with functional medicine in particular in about 2009, I think was the first time I went to a functional medicine meeting. Mm, okay. So that begs the question, what is orthomolecular therapy and what did you see there that was blowing your mind? So this center had a clinic, a laboratory, and a research unit all housed in, in one place. Um, the campus itself was pretty incredible. I don't know how many acres it was because some of the acreage was actually in crop production, like cornfields and such. The buildings were all domes connected by underground tunnels, domes instead of rectangles where there's hierarchy and more structure, but inspired by Buckminster Fuller, the the creator had had built a series of domes to house to house the clinic and the offices and stuff like that. So it was just a striking campus Um, there on the I mean, was in Wichita, but kind of a little bit on the outskirts. As I said, there was some acreage around the property, too. Um, And just the people there and what they were doing, they did a whole lot of intravenous therapies there. Their re- one of the primary things that their research team had worked on was intravenous vitamin C to treat cancers. Oh, interesting. Um, so high dose vitamin C was and still is, you know, a viable alternative treatment for cancer therapy. It doesn't address, it addresses certain cancers better than others, mm-hmm. but the essence is basically that vitamin C resembles sugar, resembles glucose and cancer cells are sugar hogs Mm -hmm. and they will take in all the sugar they can get. They will take in all the vitamin C they can get. Whereas our own healthy cells only take in sugar under the gateway of insulin being there and appropriate. Um, And certainly won't take in excessive amounts of vitamin C inappropriately, but at high doses, vitamin C goes from being an antioxidant to an oxidant and it destroys the cancer cells. Wow. Okay. I mean, I've heard of the, I've heard of the approach of the hype, but I wasn't totally sure what that meant. And I did not realize that the cancer cells actually like that the, it sounds like the vitamin C is activating the receptors and being uptaken by the cancer cells. And that that's mind blowing. Um, 
I, this might be a little bit of a side convo, but I'm just curious because I, I know there are some people out there listening that are actually struggling with cancer or have a history of cancer. If you were to bring that to your doctor, I feel like they would tell you, oh, well, that will fight the chemo. Vitamin C will fight the chemo. So at what point would you be taking that? Would it be before chemo, after chemo, uh, not chemo? Um, you know, the, I mean, the folks that really still do this and they still do this at the Reardon Clinic. And, and there are some other doctors, you know, around the country who, who know how to combine these therapies. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, taking oral vitamin C in those lower doses, I think that could lower the effectiveness of your chemotherapy. The, the intravenous, it's basically this burst that you get from, from the IV right? It's going to really take up that level very high in the bloodstream, and then it's going to fall over the next few hours. And so it's literally, it's kind of just like the chemo is doing in a way. It's like this burst of killing that then that's then going to peter out. So potentially, I think the two could be combined, but you know, that would, that would be a question for somebody who actually does this all the time to sort of like to, mm -hmm. to give the clarity of the, what's the best timing for this. Yeah. It just, it leads me to wonder, you know, if intravenous high vitamin C could be used, um, as a way of maintaining health, because most people would agree that we always have cancer cells kind of floating around in our body at any given time. And it's just the opportunity and the perfect storm that allows them to flourish. But if somebody went once a month or once every three months and got high dose vitamin C, because we know there's so many different benefits to that, not just fighting cancer, but if that could be sort of a preventative method for snuffing out any cancer cells that are sort of hanging around. Yeah. Um, interesting. That's that. Yeah. That we might have to do a whole other podcast on that. Okay. Let's circle back. So what are some of the other things that you saw at this clinic in terms of psychiatry? Like what types of patients did they have there? And they were using IVs with. They at the point that I saw them, and, and really from the point that they started as a cl clinic, the, the founder was a psychiatrist, you know, a Wichita-based psychiatrist who passed away, like, I think in 2005. Um, they were really seeing all types of patients when I, when I saw them. So they definitely did a lot of chronic pain and fibromyalgia patients. Mm. Fibromyalgia patients, you may or may not know, like doing not so much the super high dose. So like high dose is like 50 grams or 75 grams of vitamin C in a single dose. Um, people with fibromyalgia will often do what's called the Myers cocktail. Mm -hmm. It's a blend of B vitamins and some magnesium and usually 15 to 25 grams of vitamin C. So lower dose, but still that very, you know, that antioxidant support that can really help people with fibromyalgia. So yeah, it was, it was a broad spectrum of patients and it was just this comprehensive level. I guess the other thing to say was the, the, the laboratory, like this idea of, you know, somebody coming in with a complaint and, and trying to find out as much as you could about their state of their biology. And with, you know, with their own lab there, mm -hmm. you know, they did a whole bunch of nutritional testing. They did food sensitivity testing. Um, those are probably the, the main two things that were sort of out of the conventional norm. But of course, I mean, they had the ability, the availability to do hormone testing and, and the gamut of stuff that I now use, you know, as a functional medicine provider. Uh, so is, so would you, so is orthomolecular therapy really about taking like 
targeted supplements, high dose supplements always through an IV? Is that how you would? No, no. Okay. And again, okay. you kind of brought us back to the, what is orthomolecular and, and how do yeah. we get there? So orthomolecular means correct or right molecule. Oh. And the term was created in the late 1960s by the two-time Nobel laureate, think about that, Mm -hmm. don't happen too often, Linus Pauling, Mm. when he found out what a handful of psychiatrists were doing, one of those psychiatrists um, was, oh, God, I'm going to blank on both of their names. Um, One was Canadian Abram Hoffer, and the other was an American, and goodness, will his name come to me? It may not. Um, These guys ended up having slightly different approaches to the nutrients that they use, but both of them recognized that that, that, that nutrients could heal people with serious mental illness. So this, this, you know, like Abram Hoffer, 1960s Canada, as an inpatient psychiatrist, he had way more leeway to make choices and do things. You know, now everything's JCO certified and you got to do everything and you got to feed patients certain ways in the hospital, right? He could, he could take someone in the hospital and fast them for three days. And sometimes symptoms would resolve just if you withheld food for patients just for a few, just give them water for a few days and they'll get better. Mm -hmm. Um, And then again, they had, they didn't have much in the way of labs, but really looked at family histories and genetics. And um, Hoffer, most of his career focused primarily on using niacin as a therapy, whereas goodness, his name is still not coming to me. I'm just going to hit my head on the forehead when I do. Um, He actually saw more kind of types of people and had different nutrient approaches based on, again, mostly again, not based on labs at this point, but more their family history, their actually their physical bodies, what they looked like um, and, and had different approaches. And so he's the, he's the father there's a, there's people that now still follow and do training with a, with William Walsh, mm-hmm, who's mm-hmm. a PhD. He's not a medical doctor, but a, a um, biochemist. Um, uh, and again, they kind of distinguish these different types of chemical imbalances that people might have, and then use nutrient therapy based on that typing. Mm. Um, it wasn't Dr. Gant, was it? Was it? Uh, no. Yeah. Okay. Charlie Gant probably was in that school, you know, yeah. I think at, at one point, um, but probably combined it with, with other things as well. Awesome. Yeah. And we can always, I can circle back later with you and we can put it in the show notes for anyone that might be, might be interested. Okay. So you saw these amazing things in this clinic. It was a completely different approach. What kind of outcomes did you see? Because I imagine you must've been shown how this was changing things for you to be like, wow, this works for sure differently, but maybe even better than the traditional approach. Well, it's just able to start seeing there. I mean, people coming off meds, Mm. you know, people being on less meds. I mean, the people who start this and stick with it, they're generally such advocates for what they're doing, right? They are Mm -hmm. so pleased with, with the results they get, whether it's for themselves or, you know, it could be for a loved one that they're caring for that 
that med I mean, basically, and I think this is true today. I mean, medicines take people with mental illness only so far mm -hmm. and often not very far, mm -hmm. right? But full on recovery, and you know this from recover your recovery work, right? People can be sober, mm -hmm. but still struggling, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So very, very common, be, you know, they're not in bed with their depression anymore. They may be back at work, but they still don't feel good. Mm -hmm. They're still not joyful. And, and that's the big difference in, you know, I wish I could say it's easy all the time because sometimes I don't, like it's a matter of putting all the different pieces together. Mm -hmm. But once you do that, people are, again, their load's better. They're recovered versus struggling. Yes. That's such a good point because I think there's so many people out there listening to this or just experiencing a really mediocre recovery and thinking, I guess this is as good as it's going to get, which sort of forces you every day to sort of dig deep and be like, maybe this is the best it's going to get. And it's still better than it was before. So I'll just keep plugging along at my life. And my message has always been like, you don't have to have a mediocre recovery. There is so many more tools out there that have most likely not been presented to you through the traditional treatment model that we have. You know, I see people come in and out of treatment all the time and it's like, they fill out these worksheets and they do a family history and they have this crappy little group where they talk about their problems. And it's like, it's so pitiful sometimes. And I want to shake them and be like, there is a whole life out there waiting for you. And there are more tools than just what you're getting here. And you really can, you can thrive and create such a resilient life. So that's a really a, a great point. Um, so let's switch, let's switch over to your practice. What, what types of patients do you take? What types of testing do you offer? And how big is this nutritional piece in, in the treatment for, for your patients? So I see kind of all, really all ages of patients. I mean, I, I don't, people with very young children don't call me all that often, you know, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I'll, I'll certainly see seven and eight year olds, you know, for initial evaluations okay. up to geriatric patients, you know, people in their seventies. Um, so really the gamut of ages, the gamut of psychiatric complaints as well. Mm -hmm. um, and some people find me just through functional medicine connections and maybe they don't have a psychiatric complaint at all, but they have fatigue or, you know, any, oh, okay. anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and just depending on like the depth of that concern, that could be a like, yeah, that's really outside of my scope of care. Or, you know, if it's kind of more general and basic, I can, I can get them started on the functional medicine journey with that. Um, I try to, um, you know, start off with getting as much information as I can. So folks fill out, you know, pretty detailed health histories, especially for the older adults, where basically the longer you've lived, the more stuff that could have happened to you. Mm -hmm. And it's a little more straightforward when, when people are younger. Um, the lab assessment, I think, is, is a really big part of, of using this approach. It's not totally necessary, but it just can be so helpful to have that information. Mm -hmm. I kind of, in my mind, I segregate the labs into the more conventional and then the more kind of specialized. 
within the conventional realm, there are some things that I might order, say for a 40 year old woman that their primary care doctor isn't thinking to look at or order. One of those areas being really looking at metabolism and how is the body running, you know, mm -hmm. so your blood sugar, your average blood sugar or your hemoglobin A1C, your insulin, your triglycerides. Um, many people aren't getting those kind of things measured. Um, vitamin D and B12 levels. Again, a, a, a regular lab will do them, but you know, again, who's doing that on a 15 year old or a 10 year old on a right. Basis, you know, so looking at those conventional labs, which can like metabolism and some nutrient markers for older people that kind of spreads into hormone, hormone assessments, thyroid hormone is another example where conventionally, you know, one or two markers are typically assessed. And my <laughs> typical is five thyroid markers that mm -hmm. I want to get for my patients. Um, yeah, um, that's kind of the conventional piece. And then the specialty piece, um, I definitely like doing nutrition testing. There's a company called Genova Diagnostics. They do several different kinds of nutrition panels, one of which being the Genova NutraVal is kind of a favorite of mine to run on patients as they start working with me because it's going to measure amino acids. So I'll be able to know if they're eating protein, it's going to measure a whole bunch of fatty acids. And so especially the omega-3s and EPA and DHA, I'll know exactly where they are. Mm. It's going to measure glutathione, one of our body's very important antioxidants and CoQ10, another important antioxidant. It's going to measure several nutrient minerals um, it, directly in the blood. It measures other it doesn't measure everything directly. It measures other metabolic waste products and sort of infers the need for B vitamins or vitamins A, C, and E, those antioxidants. But it ultimately kind of gives you a nutrient prescription um, that I can then, you know, guide my patient to, you know, take at least this amount that was recommended by the test or, you know, this nutrient. It's completely safe if we go above that for a few months and really meet your body's need to get things kind of rubbed up and turned back on. Mm, okay. That's so good. I have a couple follow-up questions about that. So the first one is, um, I feel like we sort of get this message from the traditional conventional model all the time that nutrient deficiencies are rare. They're incredibly rare. You only see them in underdeveloped countries and there's no, there's no American walking around with a nutrient deficiency, because they'll always go back to like scurvy and they'll be like, we don't have any pirates with scurvy. There's no, you know, that's a true nutrient deficiency. So I want, I want to get your take on how do you feel about that? Do you call it a nutrient deficiency? If somebody's NutraVal is showing there's deficiencies in different areas, or do you call it something else? Do you just say, well, it's not optimized or it's, it's under, you know, a level we'd like to see. And then the next question would be, I'm really curious if you could give us some examples of things you see directly connected. So as we, you've already demonstrated, we have to treat the whole person and there's many areas that need to be treated. But I was speaking with a therapist the other day 
who was telling me that her client who struggles with anxiety was in the emergency room in the previous week because she had this horrendous anxiety attack and she thought she was dying in the emergency room found out she was critically low in magnesium. And so I went, well, yeah. (laughs) And the therapist was like, well, I didn't know. Like I, yeah, like that's interesting. Is that a thing? I didn't know about that. And, and my head almost exploded because I wanted to be like, you should not, not, not on you. Right. But whoever's teaching you, training you, certifying you should probably be giving you at least a couple hours and Hey, check these boxes, right? Your, your client comes in with anxiety. Let's just double check a couple things. But I think that's common, right? They literally are not aware of that biochemical piece, the biology piece that you and I talk about so much. So, so yeah, let me get your take on nutrient deficiencies. And if that's like, you know, as rare as they tell us, and then I'd love to hear some examples of, of connections of like, when you see a person with this complaint, and then we see this on the labs, sometimes we rectify that and it makes a big difference. So I, I wouldn't say that I always call them deficiencies when I find that like the test says a person needs more of this nutrient, but the test kind of stratifies it. Like your, your need for the nutrient could be kind of the results kind of get color coded into the green, meaning that like you did not have a high need for this nutrient. Your results indicate that your need is okay, or it could be a little higher or up in the red um, Mm. and high. I would certainly call some of those deficiencies like the omega-3s are measured directly. And sometimes they're like in the tank, right? That's Mm. an omega-3 deficiency. Um, We measure magnesium directly on the NutraVal. And yeah, sometimes it is frankly low. That's an outright deficiency. Mm-hmm. Some of the other things like the B vitamins where the need for them is being based on these metabolic markers. It's harder to call that an outright deficiency, though sometimes the marker that's out of range. So a marker gets too high and it generates a need like the, the test is going to interpret that as you need more folate is one of them, like methylfolate. Well, that could translate into, yep, you have a folate deficiency for sure. Hmm. Um, But especially with those metabolic markers, what that can also say, and folate is a good example, is that you have a genetic need for more than other people. Oh, a genetic need. Okay. Um, And the, the notion that not, we don't like, we don't all have the same need for every nutrient. So the notion of biochemical individuality was actually created many decades ago by Roger Williams, who was a Texas-based biochemist. He actually, he and his lab, they discovered several of the B vitamins there. Oh, interesting. Um, that's and- a, that's a fascinating thing right there that we don't all have the same need because we have this little chart that you can look up that says everybody needs this <laughs> daily recommended amount, but it's fascinating. Right. And I had DNA testing. I offer that to my clients, nutrition, DNA testing that showed across the board. I need much, much, much higher amounts of the, the B vitamins, very critical minerals. There was Uh, vitamin E, there were so many nutrients that I personally, according to my genetics, need much, much higher amounts, which could explain why my life 
fell off a cliff when I was 30, right? Sometimes people's lives fall off a cliff when they're 50 or 60 or 70. But my life, I became extremely ill at a young age and people would be like, I don't get it, you know? But it's like, I was eating, uh, well, like the standard American, right? I was living on bread and sugar. And so that only exacerbated my nutrient deficiencies. And with having the genetics of needing more, it's a good explanation for one of the reasons why I got so sick and got diagnosed with three autoimmune disorders in a row. So that's a really important piece. I want people to hear, you know, that your need is not the same as neighbor Susie's, you know, and the, and the genetic, again, especially on those metabolic markers in this particular test that are, that's not measuring vitamin B1 and B2 and B3, but it's measuring a a waste product that normally an enzyme would transform that waste product into something else. So what the test considers is what enzyme does that and what does that enzyme need? So our genetics puts together the enzyme. That's how that little protein gets created. Um, But the enzyme needs cofactors. Um, and Dan Kalish, who kind of teaches about this stuff a lot, he says, I hate the term cofactors because it's every important as the enzyme, right? They're equal. They're equal partners. The enzyme, the protein structure on its own does not work. But the cofactor, which could be a B vitamin, it could be a, an antioxidant. I mean, it could be a vitamin E or it could be a mineral and sometimes a combination of things. Those fit into the enzyme to give it its function. Mm, so the cofactors activate the enzyme without the cofactors, the enzyme is like dormant. Right. Mm. So, um, so if your genetics and so if your genetics creates an enzyme, that's kind of funky and doesn't work that well, it's not as good as kind of sucking in that cofactor. But if we provide more, if there's more available the two will find each other. That's fascinating. I always sort of try to explain nutrients and that sort of thing to people as a conveyor belt. If you're putting food in your mouth and this food is going through your body and on this conveyor belt, when your body reaches out and goes, I need to grow a piece of hair or I need to create a liver enzyme, it's pulling from that conveyor belt. And if the things it needs are not there, you're in trouble, right? Right. Right. So that, that fits nicely with this model. If the enzyme is like, ready to be activated and it's not finding it, it's cofactors coming down that conveyor belt, then that's expressing in these metabolites that you're looking at on the labs. Right. 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 Um, and this is where MTHFR comes in, right? MTHFR is an example where the enzyme that, so folate exists in many different forms. There's folic acid, a synthetic, lots of processed foods are, um, fortified with synthetic folic acid. A lot of, a lot of vitamins and B complexes have synthetic folic acid in them. Folic acid goes through several different steps. So there's multiple genes, lots of different enzymes involved to ultimately become methylfolate, which is one of the primary forms that the body needs. And so Hmm. if the, the, that last step MTHFR, that's the last enzyme to create methylfolate. If we just give that person high amounts of folic acid, folic acid might just accumulate and it still won't turn into methylfolate. Oh, because of the lack of sufficient enzymes. Right. 
or, oh. or because a, a faulty, in this case, a genetically faulty enzyme, it just doesn't do that job appropriately. Okay. And I've heard other doctors sort of debunk what you're just saying. And they use the evidence that folic acid is in the prenatal vitamins and it's been successful at preventing spina bifida. How would you address that argument? Um, well, well, not, not all the women that take folic acid during pregnancy have an MTHFR defect. Okay. And, and I don't know that spina bifida is in fact resulting from this. Because again, there's folic acid. Fo there are other forms of folate that are needed. So I don't know where, you know, I don't know where the hiccup is that would, that would contribute to, to spina bifida. Mm, yeah. Um, and of course, not everybody believes that um, yeah, that, that folic acid prevents all things. And, and in fact, I know some people that work in the, you know, more on this side of the fence in the, like looking at MTHFR, looking at genetics, work with women who have had fetal loss mm -hmm. and will, and will look at the genetics and will provide the appropriate support for, um, for those women. Yeah. 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 It's just such an interesting topic. I get a lot of feedback about some people say, ah, folic acid is totally safe. Some people say, ah, oh, there's some evidence to suggest it could be problematic, but then just listening to you talk. And now I'm thinking about all the people that subsist on a processed food diet. If they're eating constantly bread, pasta, crackers, cookies, that's fortified with folic acid. And they happen to be somebody that's not actively converting it into the usable form of folate. Uh, gosh, I wonder what it could be doing. On the one hand, the thing that pops up in my head is that it's sort of using up a bunch of enzymes for starters, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, and it's just not, so one of the things about, especially with methylfolate, I mean, if, if, if you've got a folate defect and you, and, and you don't have enough methylfolate to run your body, there's a metabolic you know, it's a metabolite. It's normally there. It's called homocysteine, mm -hmm. um, but it's there and should be quickly recycled all the time. Mm -hmm. um, people with MTHFR defect are at risk of having high homocysteine. Mm -hmm. And we know high homocysteine is encroached with an increased risk of stroke and increased risk of heart attack. And with it's a neurotoxin. So neurodegenerative diseases of all kinds, Parkinson's dementia. Mm -hmm. And we know there's a connection between heart issues and people right. being more susceptible to dementia. So it's, it's fascinating how it's all connected, you know, oh, it's, we could talk about this for hours. So, um, so going back to kind of the conversation about, you know, low magnesium sometimes manifests as anxiety, any other really simple connections you can make between specific nutrients and specific symptoms? I think, I think low levels of omega-3s, which, you know, sometimes it's just so profoundly low. And I think that's one area where like, if, if we just improve that um, and it doesn't take that long, you know, we're going to use higher dose fish oil for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but mm -hmm. I think that can really make people feel better pretty darn quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the amino acid profile, because it measures all of the amino acids on the NutraVal, the you know, they, they categorize it as 10 essential, as you know, like people can argue, you know, so some of the essentials are semi-essential, um, uh, but 
the 10 essential, the other 10 that we need to make all of our proteins, and then it measures a handful of other amino acids. But if you, you know, the, the folks that come in that like a lot of the essentials are low, it's like you are just under consuming protein. So let's just work on that. Mm-hmm. And again, just a pretty simple solution, get people eating more and they feel better. <laughs> yeah, they feel better. I mean, can you, can you speak to that specifically when if you see low aminos, you, the person's willing to increase their protein. This is an area that I can't talk about enough because it's immediate, immediate. Every person that I work with where this is an issue, where most of the, most of the people that come to me, it is, they will tell me in the first week, oh my gosh, I just in the last couple of weeks, I've heard, I feel less scattered. I feel more grounded. I'm actually lifting more at the gym. Like all of these different ways that it seems to manifest, right? It's so simple. And so, yes, it's so profound. I mean, when the body, you know, I've kind of started, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, I think, I think I'm partly right. So, so there is research to suggest that when we're not meeting our needs for protein, we just stay hungry. Mm-hmm. And what that leads to for some people is just going back to the processed food bin, right? Which still doesn't satisfy your, your need, right? So you're still hungry. And so for some people that's going down the chain of compulsive overeating and gaining weight. Mm-hmm. And then for other people, I think their anxiety is being driven by the fact that their body just doesn't have what it needs, right? So a state of alarm is being created. And if we just get you eating more, your cortisol, your stress response is going to quiet down and you're going to feel happier and more content. (laughs) Yes. That's so important. Like I tell people all the time, we have to constantly be sending messages of safety to our body that food is abundant. And, and the food that we need is around us everywhere. If we're willing to choose it and the body can feel like it can sort of take a breath. I mean, if you put the wrong fuel in your car or the fuel is low, or there's other things going on, that dashboard is lighting up. Right. And you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on under the hood. But same with the person you're, you're feeling the manifestation of anxiety, but it's because your body doesn't feel safe. And you have these five alarm fires going everywhere you know, maybe your blood sugar is spiking too high and there's a nutrient that's critically low that the body's like, Hey, I kind of need that. If you want me to keep making stuff, you know? And so it's trying to send you this signal. And, you know, you said there's research to suggest, you know, it's the, called the protein leverage theory. And yes, it's a theory, but I see it in practice every day. Hey, let's up your protein intake, especially at breakfast and lunch. They come back the next week and they're like, my late night cravings have been dramatically reduced. And I'm like, it's just a theory, but imagine that, you know, <laughs> see it in their lives, yeah. you know, yeah. that's the important piece. Some of the other pieces, some of the other nutrients, you know, it's not as clear cut and it may take longer, you know, these, some of the B vitamin problems. And I think, you know, sometimes it takes kind of being aggressive with dosing of the B comp, like the whole thing, usually like all of them, let's just give you pretty good doses. Um, and oftentimes people who have those high needs for the B vitamins, they're having real, um, they're having real issues with their metabolism. They're having issues with how their body makes energy, right? And that can be a little slower and a little less dramatic in, in improving it. Though on the other hand, you know, sometimes 
again, maybe I haven't done testing yet, or maybe it's a person who's just not going to do the testing. And I just tell them to start taking a good B complex. And I, I have people coming back all the time to say, oh, Dr. Bro, I mean, B complex and magnesium and vitamin D, like my life is different now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> again, I'm always like, imagine that, you know, we, we, we hold this knowledge and this is why I have the podcast. I'm like, share it across the world. The therapists need to know the addiction providers, the psychiatrists, everybody needs to know. Some of these things are just very easily, um, you know, provided if people are willing to look, to look at them. Um, gosh, this has just been so great. Could I just Uh, add one other thing about the deficiency kind of concept? Like you said, like, you know, we're sort of the general consensus, like, you know, people don't need vitamins. It's just expensive pee, you know, and then you look at that. We've got data about our intake. The average American gets 60% of their calories from seed oils, from processed grains and sugar. Those three ingredients that have virtually no nutrients in them mm. whatsoever. And then you're going to tell me nutrient deficiencies aren't common. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's mind blowing. I mean, I lived... I guess three fourths of my life eating primarily those foods. I didn't touch a vegetable until I was well into my twenties and I didn't find a way to like them until I was in my thirties and I got really sick. Um, but gosh, yeah, it's just so fascinating. I want to ask you a follow-up question about that before we move into my next topic, which was, um, which we'll discuss how we met at a conference. I have some really fun questions for you there. Um, but I'm curious, you know, when you take on a new patient, whether it's a child or an adult, and you're evaluating what their diet looks like, would you say that most of them have, I guess, lots of areas of improvement? Are they sort of all, would you say most of them are eating a mostly processed foods diet? And then I'm curious about how difficult it is for them to make some of these changes. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of people out there and some people, they only need the information. The the motivation is that they're struggling with a symptom. And so they're like, yeah, I'll try that and I'll fix it. But I also imagine there's probably more people that really struggle in this area because they're so food fixated. They've been tricked into believing they have a quote unquote disease called hypoglycemia, which is really just a lifestyle disorder. They've been told ever since they were a child, they're hypoglycemic. So they're walking around with this belief that if I don't eat every 30 minutes, I'm going to fall over and pass out, you know, and the ambulance is going to be called it. But then when you ask them, like, has it ever happened? They're like, well, no, I get shaky and angry, but I've never actually passed out. And it's like, Hmm, you know, interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just curious, are they mostly eating processed foods? And how hard is it for them to make these changes? You know, I'd say that 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 varies a lot. Yeah. Just so, so widely on both ends. I mean, sometimes I see people who are who are already very conscious of what they're eating. Um, the plan that they're using may not be working perfectly because the, mm-hmm. they're, they're coming to me with a concern, you know. Um, but they are they're at least with what the guidance they have, you know, that, that they're really conscious and they're not having mostly processed food, you know, to, to the other extreme, you know, that, that is one of the ongoing challenges. I'm sure, you know, I don't, I don't know that it matters what kind of provider you are that, um, you know, trying to de- deliver the information is kind of the first step. And, and then just, you know, trying to get people motivated and, and, interested enough to, to, 
to stick with a plan. It's actually, um, yeah, it, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing study, you know, um, and that's actually something I've been kind of looking at lately, lo looking at how other people are doing is specifically this piece. Um, and, and even if it's just my, me telling me like, go join, you know, like pay for somebody's like pay for somebody else's pay for so-and-so's course, get this information and, and, and join this group of people doing th this change. Because as you know, I mean, diet changes are hard. We are food fixated on some level almost all the time. And, you know, whether it's changing our beliefs that, you know, I mean, 20 years ago, I thought red meat was terrible. Mm -hmm. um, or, uh, yeah, I mean, I knew that much and I probably didn't even know anything else about food, you know? And so, you know, people have their own fixations and their own views. And, and sometimes quite honestly, they're just wrong. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, and other times they just don't know anything, but they've just accepted the belief that kind of, well, what you eat doesn't matter. And that doesn't play a role in your health outcome. And you can just, you can just go to the doctor. I mean, you know, just, just get an antidepressant. It'll, it'll make it better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up that sometimes people will have a way of eating or a diet where they feel like they're doing pretty well and, and they eat pretty healthfully. Um, and so they don't maybe think there's a connection, but when you start to analyze the diet and you start to pinpoint and target some of those major, you know, call them what you want, nutrient deficiencies or areas of improvement, they're definitely evident. And I see this a lot with, um, folks who will call me during the initial consult and share with me that they're vegan or vegetarian or something. And I, I always try to, you know, respect people's um, personal beliefs, a hundred percent. I'm, I'm a very much you do you kind of person, but when I ask them, you know, do you focus on protein? Like, are, are you sort of looking at that? Um, you know, and they'll share with me, well, you know, I eat peanut butter every day and this and that, and you, you send them the dietary analysis and you can see that they're really under consuming protein because it's just quite frankly, much harder to do on a vegan or vegetarian diet. Um, unless you're paying really close attention and oftentimes eating a lot of food because you kind of need to eat a lot of those, uh, fiber carbo carbohydrate based foods to sort of extract the protein out of it. Um, and so, so just to highlight that I will often hear somebody tell me I do pretty well. I think I eat healthy and that is rooted in so many different beliefs that they may have picked up along the way. For instance, if I'm working with a woman who's in her 50s, 60s, 70s, she may say that to me and then I'll sort of ask her about her beliefs and she'll say, oh, well, low fat, you know, uh, no red meat, you know, and she'll, she'll start naming the things that, oh, and I try to eat a salad a few times a week, um, you know, and it's, it, it's interesting when you start to extract the belief systems and then you kind of show them on paper, like, here are some areas that can make a massive difference for you if we can sort of target those foods that maybe you will already even like, but in a more strategic way to start filling in those holes. Um, you know, because I don't, I don't believe people need to be on a quote unquote diet. I just think they need to power pack their life with nutrient dense foods to cover all those bases, you know? Um, so that leads me to the next topic, um, which is an interesting topic, um, that I'm just sort of starting to broach publicly for the, since the, since the beginning 
of my doing this work, which has been about five years, I've personally had a lot of experience with keto because I used to run a fasting clinic and I've done keto many times myself. And people always want to ask me, should I do keto? And I don't have a yes or no answer for that. I have a lot of follow-up questions. What's your motivation? What are you looking to do? Mm-hmm. Um, but I have generally publicly told people for a very long time, look, don't do keto in the first two years of recovery. And my number one reason for that is I don't think you should loosey goosey, try it. If you're in recovery, active recovery, where you're actively trying to not take a substance because there is such a, um, on-ramp to moving into keto, that's going to put you in a place of blood sugar imbalance while you're teaching and training your body how to do that. And that makes me nervous. If some random person out there, they're doing it on their own, their blood sugars all over the place, and then they relapse. <clears throat> and I've always told people, if you, if you're just dead set on trying it in the first two years, at least, uh, allow yourself to be led through that by somebody that understands how to do that. Mm-hmm. But Now, after going to this conference that you and I met at, which was the low carb Denver conference, we heard speaker after speaker after speaker, really primarily talking about the keto and low carb lifestyle, which the only difference between those two is the specific amount of carbohydrates you're eating in a day and the massive benefit to healing the brain, which as people in recovery, we want to make sure we can heal our brains. Like if the brain is okay, we want it to be better. If the brain's really not in good shape, we definitely want to make significant improvements. And so I'm still going to say, please let a practitioner take you through it. But I've shifted quite a bit in terms of at which point do you decide it's a good time to experiment with this. And I'm actually starting to move sooner in the recovery period than, than later and putting it off for two years. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about keto as a dietary intervention or what they are, are now sort of training us to say nutritional therapeutic, um, ketosis, um, for, for treating mental health disorders. I've been, I've been interested in this for a number of years already. Um, because I started following a low carb diet for myself, not perfectly by any means, but just being aware and trying to track it and follow it. Because a couple of years ago, I had a pre-diabetic level hemoglobin A1C. Um, and, uh, and I think at the time, I mean, I mostly, it was like the number bothered me. And I, I don't think I was terribly aware of what it was impacting in my life. And, and I was fortunate, like I didn't have high blood pressure and I wasn't, I wasn't significantly overweight. I've never weighed 160 pounds. Like the highest I've ever been, I think that I got on the scale was 158 pounds, you know? So was not significantly overweight. Um, the thing that did change after I got more control of my carbohydrate intake was how much better my mood got. Mm. Mm. And in retrospect, I was so, I wasn't super, super tired, but I didn't have enthusiasm. Like even the things that I liked, I, I wasn't, I didn't stop doing anything, but it was sort of pushing, like they were more obligations than fun. Right. And, and irritability, just snappy again, not everywhere all the time, but my poor partner, you know, who just had to endure my, um, and it's just not there anymore. (laughs) 
for me and, you know, and the level of energy that I have, you know, I, I get up at six 30 and move my body. I go play with my horse two times a week. I ride horses. I mean, I'm, I love moving my body and how much I enjoy all of that is so much more with my, with my blood sugar being better than it was. Mm-hmm. So personally, I know there's enormous benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, using this with my patients, again, it's an, it's an area that's, that's new for me. And I'd say I'm, I'm more at a space with, with finding that, again, sometimes people don't even know that, that their status is off. Like nobody's measured any of these markers to tell them that, um, that they might be a, a type two diabetic or a pre-diabetic. I met, a, I met with a guy for the second time recently. So first meeting, I usually just do history with folks. Mm-hmm. And then second meeting, we're talking about their physical stuff and maybe talking about labs that I want to order. And in this case, we were talking about that and he had tried to send me some old labs and somehow I hadn't gotten them ahead of time. So he's pulling them up while we're doing a Zoom session and reading me things off. And he says, my hemoglobin A1C last year, 9.4%. The guy was a full out type two diabetic. He hadn't seen that. Well, yes, he had, he had not looked at the lab. And according to him, he had gotten no communication from his provider. Holy cow. Got a family history of type two diabetes. So he knows what it means. And I'm like, um, I think that's one of the reasons why you're feeling so depressed right now. Yeah. Um. He, he went, he, since then he's been back to the provider. They said, well, um, we thought we reached out to you, but we can't find any record that we reached out to you after this. Oh my goodness. Holy cow. That's a tragedy. Thank goodness it was caught. Right. Right. Um, and, and more often, I mean, that's, that's the outlier, you know, more often than not, I'm, I'm, I'm finding people who are pre-diabetic and they don't know it. And I'm like, you know, if we can get you to make some changes here, you're going to, A, you're going to feel a little lot better. And then B, from the prevent, prevention of dementia standpoint, I mean, good blood sugar. That is probably the biggest tool that the average 30-year-old or 50-year-old has to prevent dementia is get control of your blood sugar. Yeah. Yeah. We've done multiple episodes talking about the importance of blood sugar and it probably gets brought up in every episode because it's just such a foundational aspect of so many different parts of health from, from dementia, like you said, to, um, you know, heart attack and stroke, um, and just so many different things, but also mental health and just dealing with cravings all the time. Um, I myself, a a nutrition therapist who practices what I preach trended back into the pre-diabetes range just last December. And sometimes I get a little looser in the winter months. Um, I pay a little bit less attention to my diet. And so it was very, very easy because my body and my uh, family history, genetics, whatever you want to call it, tends to trend in that direction. So it's very easy for me to just barely fall off of my normal patterns and end up in that pre-diabetic range. So I ended up going back into ketosis in February and here we are, oh my gosh, almost June. I'm still in keto and there's moments I get kicked out of nutritional ketosis, but I'm very quickly back in it within a day. And um, it's been phenomenal for me. I mean, not only have all my biomarkers returned to normal and look amazing, but 
it's just the, the, like you were saying, like my mood, my energy levels. Um, and it was interesting. I hadn't done keto in a long time. So it really did take me about four weeks not to get into ketosis. I got into ketosis within a, a three days, but to not deal with some of those symptoms you hear about, like the keto flu, just feeling generally under the weather. And I, I didn't feel great. It wasn't as smooth of a transition as I thought it would be. But once I got over that hump at about the month mark, it was like, you know, the sky was bluer and the birds were chirping and the sun was sunnier. And it, it literally manifested in my life that way. It just felt like everything changed. And then once again, the most biggest benefit for me was that sugar was like, there was nothing there for me that it was, it almost turned into disgust. The thought of like eating some kind of gross cupcake or something. I was like, Ugh. it just, there was literally zero appeal, which for me is such a beautiful thing because it just makes me feel so free. I could just choose to eat whatever I want. And there's no mental gymnastics involved, you know? Right. right. So, so yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, the, like you said, the, the speakers that we heard at Low Carb Denver were phenomenal. And a lot of that's going to be posted on YouTube. So people can find that people can find talks that Chris Palmer has done, you know, with other interviewees out there. Um, Chris is talking more, I think, a lot about the theory, whereas like Dr. Georgia Ede is more like giving folks the practical um Nicole Laurent is a coach in this spec in this field is doing the practical and, and do, you know, again, I think for some of these big changes, you know, you have to figure out how much support do I need to make this happen? Mm -hmm. um, and for most of us, it's going to take quite a bit of support. You know, I think for you and I just kn knowing what we know, I think that's one of the big things that keeps me going on it, you know, but um yeah, I'd certainly, I know that I want to have more tools to help people stay on this path and give it a try. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty darn convinced that a lot of my folks that come in with garden variety, depression, and anxiety, again, they may, again, those people may not need 20 gram ketosis, but you know, what if we went from wherever you are, which for a lot of the, you know, again, the average American, they're consuming 300 grams or 500 grams of carbs a day. No. Okay. What if we took that to 150 or a hundred, right? And, 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 and just be more wise about the carbs that you have. Again, that indiscriminate, indiscriminate consumption of processed foods, right? Versus well, what if your carbs actually came from fruit? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> fruit and vegetables from real food. What would happen? Yeah. To feel? <laughs> uh, yeah. I love that. You said that you said garden variety, depression, and anxiety. That's like everyone I know that's like everyone I know. And mm -hmm. so, and, and, and again, like you said, it doesn't necessarily need to be nutritional ketosis. It can just be what happens when we sort of move you down the spectrum of carb intake? I, I would be willing to bet because I've seen it. It's going to make a difference. Now, is it going to you know solve all your problems in one day? Maybe not. Actually, it might. I'm going to throw that out there because I've seen it happen. Um, but it, it it's fascinating how just sort of moving up and down that spectrum, that one unit of measure, um, that one pulling that one lever can make such a big difference for people with just, we're not talking about serious clinical diagnosis here, garden variety, anxiety, depression. Um, 
This has been a fantastic discussion. You're so knowledgeable. I'm so grateful that you're like literally right down the road from me and I can send people over to you for some of these. I offer some testing, but it, the testing I offer is very broad. What you offer is, you know, really specific. And I, and I'm, I don't think you can take people outside of Colorado. I'm not sure about that with the yeah. testing piece. Yeah. Um, but you, you're here licensed in Colorado. Um, I would love to know, I know you have a couple offerings. One of them is a, is a dance group. And because we know movement movement is so important and dance specifically, I actually, I think is, is an incredible, um, different type of movement all on its own with amazing mental health benefits. How can people find you? What's the best way for people to get in contact with you? If they want to start working with you, do you offer free consultations? And if you want to tell us more about the dance group and I'll have everything in the show notes, but I would just love for you to share that with us before we wrap up. Um, so my, my website is denverfunctionalmedicine.com. Okay. So folks can find me that way. Um, and if it doesn't work, like bug me or something like every now and then, like those links, you know, the click on links, sometimes they don't work, but I, I get, I, I get emails from there some, so I know some of them get through. Um, and then my phone number is also on there. Um, Dr. Embro at gmail.com is my, is my email address. I'm not doing any other social media or stuff like that. So folks can't find me other places like that. Okay. Um, and I do, um, send out some folks, send out some information about my practice and have people fill out a little questionnaire and then schedule a, you know, 15, 20 minute phone call with folks so that we can meet each other, answer some of their questions about the practice and, and what to expect from working with me. Okay. And then um, I love talking about dance. So um, I am a groove facilitator and groove is a, a way to experience movement that's just fun and creative yet simple it's dance but anybody can do it because the movements are always simple i'm your dj i mean this is like a lifelong little dream of mine to like kind of be a dj um i do the playlist um kind of take people through a warm-up and then a you know some more intense movement and then a lovely cool down and some time and stillness i found it because there's body groove which is like there there's they're separate and yet that Misty Tripoli, the originator, have in common. So body groove on demand, that, that's my that's my home exercise, right? Dancing and moving. And then Saturday mornings via Zoom, eight o'clock, I teach. And so anybody's welcome to join. And I, you know, I don't even have a, a formal charge for it. You know, I tell people they can buy me a fancy cup of coffee if they want um, and, you know, give me a couple of bucks. But you um, have a link for people to donate to you in that way. Um, I, I give them my Zelle or, or we figure out oh, okay. Okay. how to do that. Um, and that's and they, 8am mountain time, 8am mountain time. We have fun. We dance together. I mean, um, yeah, anybody, anybody can join that. I mean, I, I taught, I had foot surgery last year. I taught from sitting in this chair, um, and danced on my own laying on my bed or whatever, when I couldn't bear weight on my left foot for three months. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's just, it is, it is just so much fun moving in rhythm, you know, all moving on all different levels. You know, we squat, we get, we support ourselves on all fours. Sometimes we're going up in the air, but again, the whole essence of groove is doing it the way that feels good to you. You can't get it wrong. That's one of the rules on the dance floor. Mm, you can't that's get another it wrong. good thing. It's so good for us to practice, right. Mm. Uh, uh, that, that you can be right, you know, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, what a fun way to introduce movement into somebody's life who um, is thinking of it in a very structured way. Like, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to sign up to play sports, you know, just, just come and just move in any way that feels good to you and make it your own. I'm so excited that I'll be able to um, try your class now that my kids are entering into their summer schedule. Uh, I'll be able to join. So I'm excited to, to be able to give that a try. And I think it's an amazing resource for people. And so We'll for sure have links for that in the show notes so that anybody can, can come sign up and send you some money for a cup of coffee. So <laughs> awesome. awesome. Um, thank you so much for being here. This has been a wonderful discussion. It's so great to be able to chat with people who are on the same wavelength as you in terms of understanding and really grasping the importance of how we eat and the nutrient density of our foods and how any anybody there's an entry point for anybody here even if you are completely subsisting on processed foods there is an entry point here for you and it's just a matter of willingness and um committing yourself to to getting better which who doesn't want to get better you know um so thank you for being here any final any final words for our audience Nope. Thank you for the opportunity to to share what I know. Okay. Wonderful. Well, you have an amazing day and we'll see you next time. Hey friends, if you loved what you heard today, please consider sharing this episode with a friend, post it on your social media, give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening from today, or give us a review. This really helps us to reach more people and give them hope that they too can reach optimal health and recovery. And for sure, head over to the Addiction Nutritionist website to sign up for our newsletter and check out Recovery U at www.theaddictionnutritionist.com. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you feel inspired today to recover well. Quick disclaimer, Nikki and I are not medical professionals in any way, shape, or form, and nothing on this podcast constitutes medical advice. It is purely for educational purposes only. Please consult your personal team of health professionals before making any changes to your diet, supplements, medication, or lifestyle. Thanks for listening.